Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, I'm really excited today. Tell everybody who's here. Uh, we've got Kira Stewart, who is uh, just passed her PhD. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's working on Irish women and political petitioning in the 19th century Ireland. So welcome, Kira. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, this really is going to be so good. We need more Irish history on this podcast. And <laughs> it's great that it's all about women. Yes. Irish history and women so it's a good combination (laughs) it's brilliant so should we start with the basics to give people an outline then and say what is sort of standard the role of women in Ireland in the 19th century yeah that's a really interesting uh, question because you can kind of approach that in different ways I think particularly depending on what class the women belong to Mm -hmm. so you know you have like the working class middle class the upper class so their positions in society is very much affected by that um, but a lot of the women I've looked at are very much belonging to the middle classes. And in that regard, they're kind of seen as the kind of protectors and exemplars of more morality within society. Um, so they're seen to actually be kind of morally superior to men. And in addition to that, the kind of idea of these women is that they are kind of, you know, keeping house, they're looking after the raising of the children uh, they're looking after the household. That's kind of what's considered to be their traditional position and what they're regarded as being experts on. But based on my research and what I've found and what many other historians have found, that, you know, that's not always the case. That isn't, you know, that isn't just what they were. They actually kind of expanded from that and took on more um kind of prominent leading roles within Irish politics in different ways. Um, So I kind of look at a variety of different women's organisations that are able to do that. But I suppose overall the kind of traditional expectations of women is kind of to be in the household, to look after kids and to set a good example within society on how to act proper. Um, You know, it kind of ties in with the kind of ideals of Victorian respectability and sensibility and they're kind of seen to fit into that sort of narrative, mm-hmm. I guess, how they would have been viewed. So can you explain to us what the political situation is in the middle of the 19th century? And where yeah. do we fall into all of this chaos? Yeah, so like in Ireland around this time, you're kind of seeing the emergence of the Home Rule movement. So in 1870, Isaac Buck kind of introduces uh, Home Rule 
um, as kind of like a political idea in Ireland, which is basically just self-governance for Ireland. And you kind of see that kind of really featuring prominently in Irish politics for the next kind of 30 years. And, you know, you see kind of the growth of the home rule movement over this time. Um, there's various home rule bills introduced, I think, in 
discovered that there was a spread of venereal disease in military garrisons. And so what the Contagious Diseases Act allowed was the forced medical examination of any woman suspected of being a prostitute. And yeah. yeah, so, you know, this was, this became a very, very contentious issue, especially for women. So in the UK, you see the formation of the Ladies National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act by Josephine Butler. So that was formed in 1869. And then a year later, an Irish branch was also set up under Anna Haslam. Um, so basically, like for these women, they were really protesting against the sort of standards because men weren't forced to undergo similar examinations. Mm-hmm. You know, the blame was really laid with women. Uh, they wanted to examine them, treat them if they had the condition and then let them go. But, you know, it was very much against their will. And, you know, anyone could be arrested, suspected of being a prostitute. And particularly working class women were very vulnerable to this just because, simply because Asked, you might have been accused of this and then forced to undergo this medical examination. So this is kind of like a really kind of incredible organization in the sense that they're really opening up discussions on sex, mm. which is mm-hmm. something that wouldn't have happened a great deal before uh, in Ireland. So even though organization itself you may not say was huge, it was I think over the their whole their whole like act period they may have only had like 49 subscribers and so it wasn't a huge movement as such but I think the fact that it allowed women a space to talk about sex and what that meant and to talk about rights to their own bodies was you know pretty groundbreaking but what is also interesting is while they are talking about this and talking about bodily autonomy at the same time, they're also protesting against what they perceive to be very immoral because some members believe that um, the Contagious Diseases Act actually encouraged prostitution because it was like, okay, we'll take, you know, prostitutes in, we'll treat them. And then, you know, they're kind of <laughs> recovered and uh, good to go. So they felt like, you know, this is the wrong thing to do. Should you not be actually banning the use of prostitution rather than actually? just blaming women and trying to treat them for their diseases or whatever. And so it was this kind of mixed movement between wanting to defend women and their positions within society, protesting against the double standards because they were, you know, obviously annoyed. It was like, why is it only women that are getting the blame for this? But at the same time, really did not agree with the idea that prostitution is allowed and is okay. And so it's just kind of like conflicts of morality, as I put it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not simply like, you know, oh, this is a feminist organization campaigning for women's rights. That's not exactly the case. They were still conservative in many ways. Um, so their campaign was kind of, I found through my research, it was very much a mix of holding meetings and petitioning. So they kind of combined the two. So they would have a meeting and invite maybe people with similar views. It would also be open to the public occasionally. And at the end of the meeting, they would organise a petition that would be uh, presented to Parliament uh, by an MP on their behalf. Um, so that was kind of the main way that they actually campaigned. And in conjunction with that, they would often invite speakers maybe from the UK. So Joseph, Josephine Butler came over to speak on a few occasions, I suppose, to try and 
gain attention for the organization uh, to try and gain more supporters. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of how they approached their campaign, which I just thought was quite interesting. I think particularly that women were actually speaking, you know, publicly on the issue, like speaking publicly about sex, which I think would have taken quite a bit of bravery on their behalf. Right, so we've got another women's movement. The, uh, this one's a lot shorter, though. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, yes. <laughs> so we've got the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association. Well, that's pretty easy. Um, yeah. What about them? Who were they and what did they do? So the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association was formed in 1876, also by Anna Haslam. So interestingly enough, some of the members from uh, the Ladies' National Association were also part of the Women's Suffrage Association, which shows like a very similar <laughs> social circles that these women kept. Um, so this organisation was formed in 1876, and you know their main goal was to obtain a parliamentary franchise for women, so to obtain the vote. Um, but in conjunction with that, they were also campaigning for municipal franchise. So municipal franchise would have meant that Irish women would have the right to vote in local elections on a local level and that they would be able to run as poor law guardians. So poor law guardians would be in charge of workhouses in Ireland and in charge of overseeing them. And it's interesting because um, women in the UK actually already had those rights. Uh, So they already had the rights uh, to vote in local elections which is something that Irish women obviously were, that was part of the motivation for themselves to gain the same rights as them, because it's like, well, why, why are our English counterparts, you know, afforded this opportunity while we aren't? And their organisation was very much focused on that. And um, I found through my research, they petitioned quite a lot, actually. They petitioned consistently every year, um, it was one of their main campaign methods. Um, I guess, you know, it was just really an important way for women who wanted to protest in a constitutional way uh, was to use petitioning because it was one of the few kind of constitutional methods available to the disenfranchised. And uh, the early suffrage organisation in Ireland was very much a constitutional, um, non-militant organisation. They, at the underwent agitation through peaceful ways. So, you know, through petitioning or writing to their local politicians or MPs, um, organizing private drawing room meetings, organizing public meetings. That was kind of, you know, the main weapons, I suppose, in their campaign arsenal. Um, And petitioning was one of the really key ways that they did this, which is something that no one has really found before. You know, some historians have acknowledged that they petitioned didn't really look into it in detail and while maybe their petitions didn't have a great deal of signatures um, compared maybe to their British counterparts um, I think the fact they were organizing them and doing it on a regular basis was quite significant um, at the beginning they didn't actually hold regular meetings they would only have like maybe a handful a year and it was very slow going at the start it was kind of hard I think for them to gain widespread membership and the kind of main areas of activity were in Dublin, Cork and Belfast. So obviously very urban areas where you might find there's more of a middle class uh, element going on. And because a lot of these organizations obviously featured 
prominently uh, middle-class women and what I found they were prominently Protestant middle-class women at that as well there was actually kind of a distinct lack of Catholic membership which that's interesting yeah like that really struck me because that's something I just kind of figured out you know when I started my research it wasn't that I was like okay I'm going to look at Protestant (laughs) middle-class women yeah it's just what happened it's what happened when I found out who was actually petitioning and you know I think it's it's hard to find a concrete reason why Catholic women weren't involved. It's hard to say, you know, this is exactly why, simply because the evidence just doesn't really exist. And so, you know, there's kind of different theories why, which is, I mean, I suppose the most obvi- obvious one is the fact that a lot of these organizations were dominated by Protestants and they're very kind of close-knit social circles. And they didn't really expand a great deal outside of that. And that probably might have seemed just like it was closed off to Catholic women. They may not have thought, you know, that it was open to them. And then aside from that, um, there's also disparities sort of in the social demographics between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. I think Sean Connolly has a book on this, where he Mm -hmm. kind of looks at how, um, you know, the Catholic middle class is very small and it's kind of just limited to kind of an elite wealthy circle. Um, whereas uh, Presbyterians kind of dominate, you know, middle class uh, professions in urban areas at the time. So obviously, with a lot of these organizations, they were predominantly middle class because, you know, you had to pay a subscription. It wasn't like a huge subscription, but obviously for the working classes, you know, um, it's hard enough to survive. So they wouldn't have had the money, you know, even if it was cheap to join and get involved. So it's kind of reasons like that that you see Catholic women ended up kind of being excluded from them. I mean, that's not to say that Catholic women weren't political. They certainly were very much so, especially in nationalist organizations. It's just for my research and my focus was on petitioning. You know, I didn't find much evidence of Catholic women petitioning. It was predominantly Protestant women. So that's what led me kind of to look at these women. And... um, that's what brought me to the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association. <laughs> um. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If we were going to fulfill a raging stereotype, we would say that Irish people like a drink, as do, <laughs> as do many other people. Uh, so how does the Dublin's Women's Temperance Association come about? 
<laughs> yes, that's a really interesting one. So the Dublin Women's Temperance Association is formed in 1874 and it's led by Hannah Maria Wiggum and Charlotte Edmonton. And again, they actually have similar members, uh, as I, I said, you know, with the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association and the Ladies National Association. Again, very similar social circles. And um, so they were kind of uh, formed in conjunction with the Males Temperance Association. And this brings in again kind of the themes I was talking about earlier, uh, you know, traditional stereotypes about what women were and how they fit into society. So it was the belief that women were morally superior to men, which kind of helped instigate uh, the formation of this women's association. Um, because they believed women were able to set a good example, women were respectable, they were more respectable than men, therefore they were more of an authority on temperance and how to be temperate. And Dorothy's is quite interesting. I think it's not really been talked about very much in, you know, in history. And um, I don't know, I guess, you know, it's hard to find evidence on them because they don't really have any, you know, existing minute books. I found a lot of my information on them through uh, the British Women's Temperance Journal, which used mm -hmm. to um, publish a weekly kind of meeting report on what they were doing. And it was through that that I found out that, yes, they do petition. <laughs> So that was good. So I included them in my research. And what was interesting about them is that rather than kind of petitioning regularly, like the Dublin Women's Association, they actually only petitioned on certain issues that they kind of deemed to be kind of prevalent or relevant to what they were doing. And so they submitted a petition in 1892 in favour of the Bill for the Prevention of the Sale of Liquor to Children. And so that was one that they were very much concerned with and did campaign on for a number of years. Um, Hopefully it's acceptable to send your kid out to buy booze at this point, <laughs> isn't it? I know. That's what they did. And yeah, cigarettes. and cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I never got sent out to buy inappropriate stuff. And you would just say, my parents sent me, and they'd go, okay. Oh, see, yeah. I, was, I was going to get by buying the newspaper for my dad every Sunday morning. I'd go and buy him the Sunday Times. That was it. No cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, they very much were obviously concerned with that. They're like, this simply is not appropriate because they were trying to curb the consumption of alcohol overall. And um, this was one of the issues that they, I guess, felt a bit more passionate about. Um, they also were trying to curb not just alcoholism, but also cas what they called casual intemperance. So, you know, like having a drink with your meal or... Um, having a drink on the train, like Hannah Maria Wiggum tried to actually, you know, discourage the sale of alcohol on trains and public transport. Um, she tried to suggest having a cup of hot soup instead. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, bless her. Yeah. Bless her crying. <laughs> so some of the reactions were a bit mixed on that. They were like, no, I don't, you know, people don't really want such a hot drink when they're traveling on the train. Obviously, they want to have a nice, refreshing alcoholic beverage. And um, they even tried to stop um, the use of alcoholic spirits, you know, on um, on boats whenever someone would feel sick. They tried to get people to stop using that too. So, you know, they were just really like trying to push the consumption of alcohol out of society, uh, primarily through kind of holding meetings. And they would also visit um, 
prisons and visit women in prisons and uh, would try to speak with them. And, you know, it was interesting, the reports in the British Women's Temperance Journal was always really positive. It was like, oh, you know, we've, we had a guest speaker and she spoke so well. She was incredibly inspiring. We're sure, you know, that she's had an incredible influence on these people who probably won't drink again. <laughs> you know, you have to be so careful when you're actually reading these reports because they're trying to convey a, that they're, un, you know, undergoing a great deal of success, whereas we don't actually know if that's the truth or not at all. Um, so I always found that quite interesting because a lot of the organizations I look at actually do that. You know, if they hold a meeting, they try to make their like, you know, they're like, oh, it's a very successful meeting. Only a few people showed up, but it was very, very successful, very influential. Um, so, and it's actually interesting that you mentioned, you know, kind of stereotypes about Irish people and alcoholism. Um, because the British Women's Temperance Journal actually published a fictional story about an Irish Catholic family. And how the father's, you know, alcohol consumption has ruined all their lives. Uh, that the mother is suicidal because she just wants to be respectable. She grew up in a respectable uh, life. And that her husband has ruined everything by drinking. And it's like this really, really dramatic story. But it's like completely fictional. And they're using this as an example to show uh, the effects of alcoholism, which I just thought was so interesting, you know, the, you know, that they used an example of a Catholic family, you know, it wasn't a Protestant family. Is that because of the disparity in earnings? Because I mean, this is not just an Irish problem at the time, is mm -hmm. it? It's a, it's a, I don't even say working class because it's below that. It's people on the breadline. It's a problem in, in these households, isn't it? Where essentially life is just a massive, horrible struggle. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think, that was, you know, something that the temperance organizations actually tried to use to their advantage. But they tried to spin it in that it was alcohol consumption that was making their lives miserable and making them poor rather than them being poor and having poor lives and drinking alcohol to cope with it. You know, they tried to kind of spin that around and to try and make out like alcohol was the root of all evil and it was the root of everything that was bad. And, um, you know, a lot of it does really tie in with themes of respectability and how people viewed each other and um I just you know I just find it so interesting because even though this this fictional story was on kind of Irish Catholics um the Dublin Women's Suffrage uh, sorry the Dublin Women's Temperance Association actually worked more so with Protestant groups you know like mm. um so it was just kind of interesting it's like oh okay <laughs> you know um so I guess it, it was a really kind of fascinating organization again in that what really stood out to me with them is it kind of shows you that not all women's organizations are maybe what you would call progressive in the sense that they campaign for women or to improve women's kind of position in Irish politics mm -hmm. there was organizations that looked at other parts of society that were you know kind of disconnected from suffrage and from women's rights but that didn't mean that it didn't kind of progress women's position within society because by being involved in this organization, they learned how to be a part of kind of a political group. You know, they learned how to organize public meetings and how to speak publicly. Um, and it really brought them kind of into, you know, the sort of public sphere and into public politics. 
Um, so that was ki that's kind of like a key finding from my research is that when you're looking at women, Irish women, and their positions in Irish life and in politics, it's really important to kind of not immediately just assume everything they do is in the pursuit of rights for women. There is actually, you know, other organizations that they were part of, and they're equally as important to, you know, the contributions towards women in public life. I was going to make a really stupid comment here, but I think I might refrain from that because Alex will have to. <gasps> <laughs> Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on from my... I was going to say, it's never stopped you before. probably <laughs> so beyond stupid. I'm sitting there, I've been debating it for about two minutes now. Go on, get it off your chest, otherwise it's just going to work. No, it's, you're talking about how um, these women have been given confidence, you know, to speak publicly. And, uh, I can, not that I can relate. I don't want to use that word that I can relate. <laughs> but this platform that Alex and I have started... If you could have heard me in the beginning, I was this mousy, nah. little, pathetic oh. historian <laughs> who had no voice. And this podcast has been given me, and I'm more comfortable in talking to people. I'm more comfortable in, you know, shoving Alex out of the way sometimes. <laughs> now we can't shut her up. It's a nightmare. Right. <laughs> and it's, I kind of feel that you, trying to push women forward, especially nowadays, because we are still partially silenced. Um, Especially in the history world, you know, you've got to be this gorgeous, beautiful woman to get onto TV. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not gorgeous. I'm not beautiful. I'm average. But I can speak pretty well, I think so, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, that was my stupid comment. My bugbear is marginalising women above a certain age. Like, they don't matter. Mm. Like Mary Beard is the standout fuck well, you to that because she just is so awesome. You can't not use her. Mm -hmm. um but i just find that you like even when i've been working in tv and you go around and you're suggesting people to be on camera and stuff and the first thing a tv company will do is google the person to see if they look good and it's like that oh. means that essentially you're giving names in of women who are in their 50s or whatever and people are like now nah, we could do better than that and it's like well no, you can't historian as historianing wise you can't yeah no um, no, I actually think, you know, that's actually a really great comment because it goes to show you, you know, like this works in any era, you know, <laughs> like, it's like when you know when you're looking into the past, into history, they kind of seem so distant and, you know, it can be hard to relate. But then you do see overlap like that, like, you know, like they're gaining confidence by going to public meetings, by speaking publicly for the first time. Uh, you know, they're finally given these spaces where they can feel a bit more comfortable. And like, I've even found that, you know, with myself over, you know, my, my time in kind of academia, the more kind of conferences I go to, the more I speak to people, the more confident I get. Because at the start, you know, like, like you were saying at the start of the podcast, I was just terrified. <laughs> I was like, I, you know, you would almost think like, what gives me the right to speak to people like publicly on like topics? It's like, like, I'm not an expert. <laughs> it's like, you know, we don't I'm often... <clears throat> we don't often go off and do the whole it's harder for women in that but it does it we were talking I was talking about with someone on Twitter the other day it just makes me laugh that blokes will be completely disgusted with the idea of anyone discussing a period or anything like that but the first <laughs> insult you throw at a woman when you don't want to listen to what she has to say is shut up your old cow or shriveled up dried up so you can't That's win ugly throw those in too you can't win it's like as soon as as soon as you don't bleed everywhere and freak them out then you're just a waste of space and they're not interested in you <laughs> it's cruel man 
very <laughs> anyway <laughs> screw them throw this in really quickly it puts me off from going on tv because i'm terrified people are going to look at me and scrutinize the way i look oh and- own it there's a whole message board out there about my fat legs from about 10 years oh. ago oh my god <laughs> yeah from some ave i'm like dudes we were filming in 32 degrees centigrade we had the farmers oh staring at us and kicking off about crushing their sugar beets to get to this airplane crash site and we had to carry all our own gear yes i was wearing shorts suck it up it's not like they were stripper shorts or anything they were sort of <laughs> midway to my knee so suck it up deal with oh my, my thighs <laughs> anyway my darling you have gorgeous thighs let's talk about more excellent irish women that also didn't give a damn because Mm -hmm. the irish women's franchise league also got up and made themselves heard didn't they oh 100 percent, yes so the irish women's franchise league which was formed in 1908 by hannah sheehy skeffington and margaret cousins and so they're kind of the beginnings of the sort of the uh, kind of 20th century Irish suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of representing a change from the earlier suffrage organizations in that they don't want to just pursue constitutional means of protest. Um, they're feel, they feel like, you know, this things are happening too slow. We need quicker progress. We need to be more forceful and make our feelings really heard. Um, and, this is where you kind of see the emergence of militancy in Ireland amongst Irish suffragettes. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting because in my thesis, I actually kind of examine definitions of militancy versus, you know, constitutionalism. It's, it's a whole kind of area in itself within suffrage. Um, because when you hear militant, you immediately assume, you know, oh, it's, you know, violence, violent acts. Um, but it depends how you would define violence and what that means, especially in conjunction with constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. Because even though they are starting to pursue, pursue more militant methods, it is still actually efficient, uh, which is something I found really interesting. And in fact, it even sees a debate opening up on the value of petitioning amongst Irish suffragettes. Uh, some, particularly Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, kind of felt like, you know, petitioning is just useless now, you know, it's not doing anything. Uh, whereas there was others uh, like Mary Hayden, for example, who, despite being part of the Irish Women's Franchise League, was would have been more non-militant. She wouldn't have really agreed with militant acts. And she kind of saw the value in petitioning and what it had done for women's suffrage so far and bringing attention to their issues, even if progress was perceived as so it still helped get women to the position that they were in currently. Um, so there's all these different things kind of going on with the organization. So uh, some of the members uh, threw stones through government buildings in Dublin, which uh, resulted in their imprisonment. Um, then you have, um, at the same time, they are still petitioning. And one of the most interesting petitions I actually uncovered was the Lord Mayor's petition. So at this time, the Lord Mayor of Dublin had this ancient right to present a petition uh, directly in Parliament. So the Irish Women's Franchise League, alongside the Women's Social and Political Union in Britain, um, kind of worked together to organise a large petition from Irish women to um, the uh, parliamentary franchise introduced. 
and they worked alongside the Lord Mayor of Dublin, who was who agreed to go <clears throat> over to England to Parliament to present this petition in person on their behalf. So it turned into like this really large spectacle. You know, there was members of the British suffragists minute by Parliament that day. Uh, they welcomed the Lord Mayor to, uh, into England uh, with lots of kind of pomp and parade and celebrations and. It was reported as like this huge celebratory event. Uh, so in this way, petitioning was being used to kind of create a performance. So it's kind of what you would call performative petitioning. So it wasn't just as simple as just writing a petition and sending it in and nothing happening. Uh, they were actually using it to create a spectacle and to gain attention for the event. You know, the presentation of the petition wasn't the main part. It was actually just creating uh, this huge sort of celebration of women and what they want, which is the right to vote. Um, so I just thought that was like a really fascinating finding uh, from my research on their approach to petitioning and kind of constitutionalism and militancy. Um, you can see that even though these are organizations, you know, that are saying they're militant and that they don't want to just use constitutional methods anymore, you see that they actually kind of combine the two. And um, which was actually, you know, one of the findings I really enjoyed looking at. So it goes to show that you, you see women are changing. They're becoming perhaps, you might say, I don't know, more not rebellious as such, but just, you know, their, their methods are changing from their earlier, um, <clears throat> earlier suffrage organizations. And you can really see it evolve through this, which I thought was you know, a re it was just really enjoyable to kind of see how it evolves, see both how suffrage evolved and how petitioning evolved alongside that. So we've got one more to look at, which is the Ulster Women's Unionist Council. I, I said that right, didn't I? Yes, you did. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so the Ulster Women Unionist Council was established in 1911, so kind of in the midst of the emerging Ulster crisis. And this uh, was as a result of uh, another home rule bill being introduced and this was opposed by Ulster Unionists as it seemed quite probable that this one would succeed. Um, you know the liberal minority government pledged to introduce the third home rule bill. It was uh, becoming a really contentious issue especially for Ulster Unionists who kind of feared it being introduced in Ireland because they felt like they would just feel kind of pushed out if they were under maybe you know a nationalist government that's seeking self-governance within Ireland and so the Ulster Roman Unionist Council was kind of formed as a sort of complement to the Ulster Unionist Council and um, I looked at them from the point of the Ulster Covenant and the Ulster Declaration um, Diane Uckert has actually done a great deal of work on the Ulster Women's Unionist Council, just in case anyone is interested in that. She has a few books on that, which are really, really fascinating. So I kind of tried to expand on her work and the work of other historians by looking more closely at the Women's Declaration. So this was organised in 1912 in opposition to home rule being implemented in Ireland. And what was fascinating about this is that these documents were not actually addressed to any Parliament or a particular authority. The, yes, the Ulster Covenant was a promise between Unionist men and God to oppose Home Rule, whereas the Women's Declaration was a promise 
to support their male counterparts in the protest. So it wasn't even a promise between them and God. They were promising to support the men. Um, but, uh, you know, even though it was seen kind of as a kind of secondary document and women were in a secondary position, it was actually, gosh, it was a huge, huge uh, petition. Like the women managed to collect 234,046 signatures. You know, like it was massive, especially compared to some of the petitions I've looked at in other uh, women's organizations, this far exceeded it. So I can't, I think it kind of goes to show how this particular issue was able to reach a much wider audience. Um, you know, like women's suffrage was particular to women interested in suffrage. Therefore, it was hard to kind of expand outside that. Whereas this issue was an issue that appealed to the upper classes, the working classes, um, to Protestants, to unionists. And it was very much tied up in a protection of wanting to protect their identity and how they fit in in Ireland and wanting to protect their position. And, um, and looking, at, looking at the Ulster Women Unionist Council through their work on the women's declaration, really showed that, you know, they were very much involved, very politically involved in arranging meetings, in collecting signatures. Um, it also shows that there was a really wide uh, signatory base in the sense that you had a lot of working class signatures, people from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, which was, it just differed so much to the earlier organizations that I had looked at. And again, I found this organization acts again as another example of how, you know, not all women's organizations were in the pursuit of suffrage. Um, this organization didn't really have any particular stance on suffrage. Their goal was to protest home rule and that's what they did. Um, but they were still, you know, a really valuable contribution to the politicization of Irish women at this time. Um, so I found it was really important to include them in my research and particularly to kind of examine the declaration as a type of petition. And it goes to show that not all petitions are just petitions to Parliament. They can take many other forms, just like the Declaration and the Covenant. I really uh, want to ask, so you mentioned militancy briefly. Yeah. Are any of the organisations you've looked at violent? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting kind of question to approach because it depends how you would define that uh, for example some uh, two members of the women's social and political union came to Ireland and threw a hatchet into a carriage that held the prime minister and uh, I mean that could be definitely perceived as being violent because they could have potentially gravely injured him mm-hmm. um, so there is some ways that they are as being violent, particularly perhaps by, uh, you know, the press or politicians at that time. Um, But that is very much kind of the later suffrage movement, because that's where you're seeing the beginning of militancy and, um, you know, physical forms of protest compared to the earlier suffrage movement, which was very much focused primarily on constitutional agitation, like petitioning. And so you definitely see this this kind of change over from the 19th century to the 20th century. Um, so I guess it's more, I would be more inclined to describe them as whether they were militant versus non-militant, which in a sense in itself can be problematic, I found, because, you know, some women could be part of the Irish Women's Franchise League 
which described itself as militant, but they themselves were not militant and did not agree with militancy. Uh, the same with their British counterparts. There was a woman called Mary Gawthorpe who um, did actually engage in, I suppose, what you would call militant acts, like throwing stones into windows and, you know, that kind of thing. But over time, she actually began to disagree with the evolving nature of militancy and began to feel like it was actually becoming too violent. So it just goes to show it's very hard to say, you, you know, to describe one person as militant versus non-militant, because it seems to be very much kind of on a scale. You know, it's kind of different for everyone. You know, people are kind of, you know, complicated. You can't describe them as one way or the other. Uh, some may feel one way and then some have their limits. Uh, to how much they agree with in terms of militancy and constitutionalism. Really, you know, kind of a fascinating way, fascinating way to look at it. What is the common denominator between all of these women? Yeah. So the common denominator which brought all of these organisations together for me in my research is obviously, you know, some of these organisations are similar, some of them are very different. It can be kind of hard to bring all these organisations together rather than just looking at one and looking at it and everything that it does. Uh, so for me, the way I was able to bring them together was petitioning. Uh, you know, all these organizations organizations petitioned, whether they believed it was an effective method of protest or not, they petitioned at some point in their political lifespan. And, you know, petitioning was just, I don't think it can be understated, you know, how valuable it could be for these women. You know, it could be used in many different ways. It could be very innovative. Like I mentioned before, it was kind of used to create a performance when they presented the petition through the Lord Mayor. Um, it can be used to gain attention in ways that they were unable to do. And I think one important way is that it offered women a way to kind of express political opinions without becoming directly involved. So with the Contagious Diseases Act, um, there was actually a lot of petitions from women's religious groups and but they wouldn't have spoke publicly on the issue you know because again you know they may have been too nervous to do so but petitioning kind of offers them a, a sort of a vehicle through which to express their political opinions and to actually get thinking about how they feel on these issues um so that was definitely the kind of common denominator between them all and and you know petitioning in its innovative and even kind of militant forms it continues to play a role in generating publicity for women's suffrage, even later on when many Irish unionists and nationalists wished to focus on the constitutional question of home rule, which, you know, was like a really kind of dominating feature of Irish life at that time. Petitioning still allowed women a way in which to express, you know, their political opinions and basically gave a voice to the voiceless. How did women use their traditional roles in society to enter politics and public life then? Yeah, so it kind of comes back to the idea of women's um, moral superiority. And it also kind of reflects what a historian Alex Tyrrell has defined as women's mission, which is actually a really interesting concept, which is just basically that, you know, women know what is right and know what is wrong. They are born with, <laughs> you know, this kind of innate knowledge of how to be respectful and how to present yourself in a moral way. And they were just seen by some as being morally superior to men. So it's interesting because rather than being hindered by their traditional roles in society, they actually expanded from that. 
so women were able to become involved in temperance for example because they were able to argue that well you know we know what is right we know how what is moral we know how to instill moral within society and this argument was also used to help Irish women become involved in you know becoming poor law guardians which was really interesting like the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association argued that you know women keep a house and they know how to run a house and a workhouse is basically just like a very large household therefore they are far more qualified than men you know to oversee the running of a workhouse so yeah so it's kind of using traditional expectations of what women were and what they were supposed to be but actually using that to argue that well we should be involved in public life we should be involved in these organizations because we have more knowledge on them so that was a huge finding for me was kind of seeing that you know that they didn't try to hide that part of themselves in fact they used it to their advantage you know they accepted it it's been brilliant it's so interesting well thank you (laughs) Kira thank you so much for joining us that was that was excellent I really enjoyed learning about more about well more about Irish women in the 19th century because we know we know very little there's not very much published and it's so exciting to be able to see these women emerging from these little housewives into becoming (laughs) so involved in the political sphere so thank you so much Oh, thank you for having me. I hope I was able to (laughs) give an idea of all the different organisations and what we're doing. Join us tomorrow when John D. Hosnell will be with us to talk all about the Siege of Acre. We get to talk Saladin, Richard the Lionheart and utter mayhem for two years sitting outside a Middle Eastern city. So don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.